Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Before we get started, we'd like to invite all of you to try out our operations, coaching, and community platform, the COO Society, free of charge. We're really excited by what we've built, and we feel it is the industry's first and only RIA-specific online coaching platform for operations professionals. The courses, the discussion forum, and our monthly member meetups are all specifically designed for operations professionals at any level, from veteran COOs to new client service associates striving for both professional and firm-wide growth. Find out more at COOsociety.com. Click the Get Started button at the bottom of the page. Again, the website is COOsociety.com, all one word. No payment information is needed to get your free trial started. Now, on to this month's episode. Welcome, everyone, to episode 43. We've had some large RAs on our podcast in the past, and, and today is definitely no exception. Our two guests manage a combined $50 billion of assets and employ over 700 employees. So they've really had to build out their firm's operations at scale. So this is really going to be a fascinating discussion. Joining us from Moneta, headquartered in St. Louis and with offices in Kansas City, Denver, and Boston, is Amanda Borelli, the firm's chief platform officer. She has been at the firm pretty much her entire career, spanning a number of different roles and responsibilities across the operations department. So we're going to learn a lot from Amanda today. Uh, Amanda, welcome to the COO Roundtable. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. This is, this is my favorite area to speak on, so great. excited. Awesome. And joining Amanda from Wealthspire, headquartered in New York City, and they have a total of 19 offices around the country, is the firm's president and chief operating officer, Eric Sontag. Eric has had a long career in RA operations, and I'm going to let him walk through his career path in just a minute. But Eric, uh, thanks for being here today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great. Well, Amanda, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Moneta? Yeah, absolutely. So Moneta's lineage actually can be traced back about 150 years to the insurance business. Uh, but back in 1988, the organization was officially renamed Moneta and in 1989 became a registered investment advisor. Currently, uh, we manage about $32.8 billion in assets under management with about 440 employees that make up our client-facing and then back-office teams. Uh, Mineta works with people at every stage of life to achieve their financial goals. So we take a holistic approach to find a best fit solution for several types of clients that typically fall into one of three categories. First is a category that we call our family CFO clients. So successful families that are looking for a comprehensive approach to financial planning. And then our family office clients, which are the ultra high net worth clients, and then institutional and retirement plan clients. Uh, in terms of growth, historically, we have grown organically, but over the last six years, we have focused on building out our platform offerings to be able to support more inorganic growth through M&A. So as this has happened, we've had more experience in the mergers area. Uh, in that, we were running to make sure that in these transactions, there's a great cultural fit. And then we've also just been exploring what acquisitions look like for us as well. 
Great. And Eric, I'll, I'll give you, uh, I'll let you give us some background on Wellspire. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the firm dates back actually to 1995 uh, when it was known as Sontag Advisory. That was founded by my father, Howard. Um, he had a, a JD and an LLM in taxation. He was working with high net worth clients doing planning at, at Lazard. Uh, and at, at one point, he had this realization that, you know, always putting clients into Lazard run funds, you know, even as high quality as a firm as it is and was, it, it just didn't feel like a true advisory relationship. So hung up the shingle, started his own firm uh, that was driven by, in his words, sitting on the same side of the table as his clients and being a true open architecture fiduciary. Um, and given his his JD and the, and the tax background, uh, it was heavily focused on estate planning uh, as much as uh, the financial planning. So that, that mission really hasn't changed over the last uh, 27 years. Um, but of course, the brand and, and organization has. Uh, in 2018, Santec Advisory was a $6 billion firm. It had grown entirely organically. It was uh, primarily in New York City and a small satellite office in Connecticut. And I was actually in an industry study group um, uh, for a few years where I met a principal at a firm uh, called Bronfman Rothschild, which was another $6 billion firm uh, in the DC metro uh, area and Wisconsin. And very organically through our study group, um, you know, Bill Schwartz, who, who is the principal, uh, we, we recognized uh, the similar and complementary aspects of our businesses um, and the growing importance of scale. So eventually we crossed that bridge of, hey, what would this look like if we combined? Uh, and ultimately Sontag acquired Bronfman in 2019. And as part of that transformative merger, we knew a rebranding was necessary and, and Wellspire uh, as, as of today was born. Um, since then, we've made uh, multiple acquisitions of, of culturally aligned and like-minded firms. Um, we serve three uh, client segments. The primary one, uh, generally speaking, is clients with between one and 20 million, um, where we offer a comprehensive suite of services covering a, a wide array of financial planning, investment management, uh, and, and estate planning areas. Um, we have a family office services segment for clients that typically uh, exceed 20 million in, in assets, and they have a lot more complexity with respect to uh, trust and estate work, intergenerational planning, and, and legacy planning. And we have an in-house trust and estates team uh, that, that is a big part of that offering. Uh, and finally, uh, for the Henrys, if you will, we have a, a, a segment called Wellspire Pathways, uh, and those are for clients with fewer full-service wealth management needs, and they're really looking to work with a dedicated financial advisor uh, in a cost-effective way. Um, one last thing I'll touch on is plans for, for growth going forward. Um, you know, we strongly believe in a need to grow both organically and inorganically through acquisition. Um, and organic growth is, is definitely the lifeblood of any organization, in my opinion. But acquisitions are critical uh, for getting talent and for finding teams that in turn help boost organic growth in the future. So I think, I think people often think of organic versus inorganic as if they're completely independent forms of growth when in fact, I view them as highly connected. Um, you know, we don't have specific targets about what our size is gonna be, or we're gonna double or triple in, in X years. Um, we're never gonna be the highest volume acquirer that's out there. Uh, we really need to find the right firms to acquire and, and grow the right way. You're, you're both active in M&A, and so we're gonna, we're gonna touch on that in, in just a minute. But uh, first, Eric, why don't, uh, why don't you walk us through your career progression and how you wound up as president and COO at Wellspire? Sure. Um, so I'll give my dad credit that he didn't push me uh, too hard. Um, I think as any parent knows, as I, I have a seven and four-year-old, 
that uh, attempting to do that usually backfires. <laughs> um, so instead, my interest stemmed from really witnessing day in and day out a, a parent who absolutely loved his work. And like most advisors, he formed incredibly deep connections with his clients and the passion, you know, many of them are his closest friends today and the passion and pride he had in his work, it was just contagious and, and impossible to miss. Um, but in any event, I, I wanted to do my own thing after college uh, and I wasn't sure if the RIA world was right for me. Um, I started my career at BlackRock. Uh, I went through various training programs as an analyst, as an associate. I spent a few years in their New York office and then they sent me to their London office for two years. So overall, fantastic experience on the investment and risk management side. Um, I joined Santec Advisory in, in, in 2009 uh, on the investment side, and I was meeting with investment managers every day. Um, also got my CFA at that point, uh, and we were about 20 people at the time. And BlackRock was actually a very tech-driven firm, so I was shocked uh, when I saw some of the inner workings of the RIA industry. And it made me, I just became very passionate about improving technology and operations. And some of that was because I loved you know, making things more efficient and better, but it was also seeing about how the time of our staff was being used. So I always remember watching one of our senior associates um, spending half a day printing and stapling trade tickets. And I was just so horrified. Uh, and I thought, wow, we, we really need a rebalancing system. And that was one of the first investments we made. Uh, and it was a few years into the job. I, we had five partners at the firm. I said, we really need to uh, hire a COO. Uh, and they asked me if I would consider taking the job. And it came as a bit of a shock to me. I always thought of myself as more of the investment side. Um, but it was one of the best career decisions I've ever made. I uh, haven't looked back. Um, my role now as COO, the president of a 270-person uh, firm uh, and around you know, 19 billion, I, I forgot some of our stats. Um, it, it's very different than it was then, but I couldn't be happier with the path that I uh, ultimately took. Yeah, we've we've talked about it a lot on on this podcast. The the need to just keep raising your hand uh, to, to to take on more responsibility and to figure out your niche uh, within the firm. And Amanda, I know that's a, a a big part of your story. So, can you give us an, an overview of the the various roles you've held on your way to the chief platform officer at Moneta? Yeah, absolutely. So I initially started back at Moneta in 2007, fresh out of college with a degree that had absolutely nothing to do with financial services at all. I actually have a degree in criminology um, and a secondary degree in German, which quite frankly makes zero sense as to why I wound up where I am today. Um, when I got out of college, was just really looking for something uh, that was going to be more process oriented. Um, and found my way to Mineta. So I started working as a client service manager with one of our partners at the firm. And really, he, he kind of took me in and, and taught me a lot about the industry from the ground up. So I got the opportunity to meet with clients and learn about back office process from a team perspective, in which I learned, I feel like we don't necessarily, uh, there are so many different partners at Mineta. Um, I knew there, there were a lot of different ways of doing things, right? And our back office at that point was, was very small. So when I got the opportunity to kind of grow into more an operations-based role on the team, I, I was able to jump at that. And so I worked in as an operations manager for that team and got to build out and merge two teams to, together because my partner team merged with another partner team. Um, so I got to look at processes kind of across, uh, across two different businesses and figure out, okay, well, what's the best way to do this? Um, from there, I got to coordinate a lot with our back office on, on training programs 
And I got to be a guinea pig because uh, as, we, as you mentioned before, kind of being able to raise your hand, um, that's, that's the best thing that you can do for your career. So from there, I moved into a space of technical training and project management. So I started looking at um, the smaller technology stack that we had back then and figuring out, well, how can we grow this? And at that point in time, we didn't have a lot of systems that were necessarily talking to each other. You had a lot of advisors that were using um, proprietary built analysis, and we had a lot of different databases that were housing information. Um, so we started looking at the technology stack and really refining and de deciding what was important to us. Um, what did we need to be able to, to function and run an efficient business? And we, we started building from there. So I spent a lot of time in the project management space and business systems, um, grew into a, a director of business systems over time. So I worked very closely with our data aggregation tools, CRM, tax planning software, financial planning tools. And then as Mineta has continued to grow over time, had the opportunity to grow into the chief platform officer. Um, so really been able to focus on looking at not only our technology stack, but then how are we applying operational practices to that, op to that technology stack and ensuring that the business is able to focus on what's truly important, really focus on the clients and ensure that they have the support that they need uh, from a back office perspective. Yeah, we, we talk with our consulting clients all the time. The, the tech choices, everybody thinks once I've made the tech choice, that's the, you know, my job is done and it's the processes oh, around starting. those. Yeah, it's the process around the technology that's hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So Eric, you, you talked about M&A a little bit, and, and I always love talking about the role operations plays in firms' M&A strategies. So I'm going to go to Amanda first on this one, but Amanda, how, how do you use your firm's operations platform to attract advisors to Moneta? Well, I think what's really important is to identify, you know, why is an advisor looking to join Moneta? So what pain points are you currently experiencing that are, are causing you to kind of look outside and decide what's really best for your practice. So whether it be you are currently getting bogged down in the day-to-day -day of, of compliance and you're still also having to focus on your client book, and then you also have a lot of marketing issues that are coming through, what you really need to be able to look at is um, how can how can Manetta support you in in your endeavor of growing your practice and growing your business the way the way that you want to? So our operational offerings for those firms are built to really solve a lot of those pain points. We have our back office structured as such that these firms will have access to not only compliance resources, marketing, investment research, and diligence. Um, you have also the facilitation of onboarding a client. So we take care of new client onboarding, getting them set up with their accounts at the custodians, tracking the TOAs. And those are a lot of those tasks that have to happen for the advisor throughout the day to make sure you're taking care of the client, but doesn't necessarily need to be done by the advisor or the advisor staff. Could that actually be done because it's a scalable, repeatable process by a back office to give that time back to the advisor so that way they can really focus on, on what's important to them and what's important to their clients. So we really utilize that operations platform to ensure that any advisor that's going to be coming to Mineta has that taking, they, they can feel confident in that that's being taken care of for them through this process. We wanna make sure that they have time for practice management, that they're not so tied down in actual practice operations. 
Great. And so Eric, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. Uh, how do you use, and you, you touched on this a little bit, how do you use m and to bring on operations talent, not necessarily advisors, but just the, the, the talent? Uh, how do you bring them on to Wealthspire? Yeah. So um, as I, as I'd mentioned, you alluded to, we, we acquire for talent first and foremost. Um, and we always ask two questions when it comes to acquisitions and they're, they're equally important. Uh, one, is it better for clients? And two, is it better for staff? Um, and with that in mind, I'll answer your question about attracting operations talent from sort of two different angles. Um, the first is that we're more attracted to firms with great operational staff. So it wasn't that long ago that we had a, a three-person investment team supporting like $5 billion in assets. And now at, you know, 19 or so, we have 15 members of our of an of the investment team. And the same goes for client operations department, which was uh, you know, 10, 12 people at the beginning of 2021, and now it's at, at 20. Um, and I saw an article that uh, Michael Kitsis had spoke recently at a, at a conference um, to this point that advice is not scalable. Um, and I think that's widely accepted for advisors uh, and their role, but it's underappreciated for operations and back office, right? Like it more or less takes twice as long to open 50 accounts at a custodian as it does for 25. So you really need uh, more operational staff as, as you grow. And when we acquire firms that have really strong operations, that's a reflection of the depth of their operational staff. And it gets us that much more excited uh, to bring them onto the team. So in short, the strength of a, of a firm's operations team absolutely impacts our desire to acquire that business. And, and flipping it the other way, um, our desire to add operations talent is also a key point uh, when we meet with the sellers. Um, and Matt, I know you often like to highlight uh, on this podcast that sometimes our industry uh, suffers uh, from this perception, this really awful perception that operational staff is like viewed as less important, uh, for lack of a better word, than uh, than the advisors. But I'm I'm happy to report that when we speak with sellers in the acquisition process. Um, and, and the ones that we meet with, at least, they they deeply, deeply care about the impact of the acquisition on their entire staff. Um, and in fact, we had an acquisition last year where that was one of the primary uh, drivers was a recognition that you know keeping his his talent on the on the operational side was going to be uh, much more difficult um, be, versus firms of scale that can provide career pathing and other things that I know we're going to be touching on. So when they, when sellers see the degree to which we value adding talent in operational areas equally, and just as much as, uh, we care about adding new advisors, it's a really powerful and, and welcomed message. Well, you mentioned Michael Kitsis's phrase, advice is not scalable. And so that's exactly where I wanted to go on the on the next question. It, it's a topic that comes up a lot with our clients, this balancing act between customization and scalability. Every, every advisor wants their client to think that they're offering them a one-of-a-kind solution to their investment objectives. But at the same time, you will limit the number of clients that you can serve if every single client is receiving a fully customizable or customized service offering. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm going to ask both of you how you've solved for this. So um, Amanda, I'll go to you first. I know you've spent a lot of time focused on this and in the search for that middle ground. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's not so much that you can't even provide something that is that is customized to your 
to your client, it's that you have to be smart about the data that you're providing and how you're gathering that data and how you're interpreting that data. And we've spent a lot of time having conversations with our advisors about what's important to you, what are you hearing that's important to your clients, and then how are we able to track that for you? What type of tools are we utilizing to track that information? So that way we're creating thoughtful output where you have the ability to pull a lever here or pull a lever there to put customization into these presentations. We don't want to give you something, one that's, it, you're not going to have a canned response to every single client. Um, and we want to make sure that also that, that it's beneficial to the client and that you're, you're showing them everything that, that, that they're requesting over, over the course of your relationship with them. So we spend a lot of time looking at the data that we have, analyzing that data, and then meeting with advisors to come up with whether it be um, a, a formatting of a report or is it coming up with an analysis and an on-screen experience for them based off of how they like to receive this information. But it's something that the entire firm could use because we do have a lot of similar clients across books of business, but the way Mineta is set up, you also have the ability to be your own entrepreneur, really. So you have your own, um, each practice has the ability to show any number of, uh, of analysis to their, to their clients. And then they will now, the way that we have things set up, they're able to share this information and present that in a, in a thoughtful way for each individual client, utilizing the data sets that we've had. Before, we had so many, we had information stored in so many different places that it was difficult to do this, but we've spent a lot of time and a lot of efforts being able to come up with standards that have really helped us in this, in this type of presentation um, for clients. And Eric, how, how are you tackling the customization versus scalability conundrum? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, this is a question that's it's very near and dear to, to my heart. And we talk about it all the time. And a quick story, when we rebranded and formed Modern Day Wellspire, we had 50 leaders from across the company come together uh, for an exercise to create a set of core cultural beliefs. And we came up with six. Um, but there was one that got by far the most discussion time and heated debates. And that was about this exact trade-off of scalability versus customization. So ultimately, we created this cultural belief. It's called Pursue Balance. And it reads, I create a flexible environment where scale and efficiency complement uniqueness. Um, and I think Amanda was touching on this as well. I, I have... I have a few guiding principles around this debate, right? You wanna retain and foster a spirit of empowerment and idea generation. And you can't just force things for the sake of consistency in of itself. It needs to align with the vision of the firm. I, I think we on the operational side sometimes default to this like all, all hail consistency, right? Uh, like type of attitude and that more consistency is always is always better. Um, and like everything else for me, the devil's in the details and consistency can mean very different things to different people. So for our, for Wellspire, the type of consistency I think about is like Ritz-Carlton or Four Seasons, right? If you, if you stay at multiple Ritz properties, you're not going to get an identical, uh, or a cookie cutter, um, or I think Amanda said canned, right? Your experience at each. Um, but you have a very consistent experience in a lot of ways. You know you're staying at a Ritz because of the quality and level of service is pretty consistent. They share you know, common elements like the Ritz Kids Club or the rooms in common areas have similar branding elements. You're using the same booking system and stuff like that. 
Um, and that's how I think about Wellspire, right? Our, our advisors have different strengths and weaknesses. Some are going to go more weeds uh, on investments and are going to want reports with their clients that are going to go more into the weeds on investment detail than others. Um, some of our advisors are going to excel in terms of the bedside manner they have in terms of working with a client going through a painful divorce, while others maybe not as much. And so should a client have an identical experience working with every advisor at the firm? No, I don't, I don't think so. But at the same time, it should never feel like the client is working with a different firm. And, and for me, that's really the critical distinction. So just to put it into practice, you know, I'll highlight an example. We require that everyone use the same CRM uh, and reporting platform because those systems are highly integrated into the overall daily operations and the service delivery and, and workflows. Uh, in the client experience. But within our reporting platform, we have many different templates out there for advisors to choose from uh, in terms of meeting prep or quarterly reports, um, because we we do want to deliver a personalized uh, experience from that respect that caters to, to client preferences. Um, you know, I, I'll end with this. As the firm grows, you don't want to lose that spirit of experimenting and testing new ideas. Um, I think that can hamper ingenuity create excessive bureaucracy, um, and it can also demoralize staff who are passionate about adopting new and better ways of working. So we really aim for that balance where different teams can try new processes and techniques um, as long as there's, you know, working on the same tech stack and, and sort of critical and core processes are shared. Uh, and then as they try new other, you know, new techniques and, ex and experiment, we want to create an environment where uh, they could share best practices with, with one another. Well, somewhat of a continuation on this discussion of customized versus scalability uh, is whether or not a firm centralizes their operations tasks or if they let each advisor have their own individual service team or or pod. I, I, I often hear that phrase pod. Um, so, Eric, what tasks have you centralized versus which tasks are held with the advisory teams themselves? Yeah, so at a, at a very high level, we aim to centralize tasks that are more repeatable and scalable and don't, actually more repeatable more so than scalable, um, and, and, and that don't require personalization or catering to client preferences. Um, so let me take a step back on the bigger question of you know, whether to centralize or not. Um, there's, there's a well-known African proverb I like to cite when this question comes up, which is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Hmm. Um, I think the argument for decentralizing usually comes from a place of believing it's more efficient to go it alone and have a dedicated client service person on your team. Um, and in theory, I can understand why, why someone might feel that way, but in practice, and especially as a firm, uh, grows in, in size, um, it, I don't think it works, and I have a clear bias towards centralization. Uh, and it's so much more than just getting like redundancy. It's about opportunities for better training, mentorship, allowing for career paths, uh, and and specialization. You know, to name a few other benefits. Um, one one specific element of our org structure that I'll highlight on this topic: um, we bifurcate the role of a client service associate that we call CSA and client operations. So we have the CSA is assigned to specific clients and they're generally gonna work with one or two advisors and they are engaged with the client uh, day in and day out. They get to know these clients very well. 
Um, but they're not actually the ones dealing with, with Schwab or Fidelity or the execution of, uh, of account opening or onboarding. Um, and instead, they're tasking that out to our centralized client operations department. And the centralized client operations department does not engage directly with clients. Um, so the CSAs, you know, the goal of the structure is really to free up the time of client-facing staff, such as CSAs, to allow them to both work with, you know, more clients and provide more personalized service. The way I think about it is a, a client's going to call their CSA to follow up on things like, was that charitable gift done? Can you send something to my accountant? Um, and they're also going to want to talk about weekend plans. Uh, and we want the CSA leaning into that conversation and talking about weekend plans and how they're spending the holiday and so forth. We don't want them rushing the client off the phone because they just learned that there's a NIGO that they have to go resolve. That is for the centralized client operations team to deal with. And, and, and importantly, while both CSAs and client ops staff are service and task oriented, this separation allows those who love engaging with clients, which are the CSAs, to really lean in on that. Uh, and then for client ops staff, where they really prefer the back office aspects, they they can lean in lean in there as well. And Amanda, I know you've got a mantra: uh, repeatable processes automated by workflow. So walk us walk us through that. Absolutely. So we we have over the past three years actually started building out our centralized operations department and basically started from scratch because we we ran into that conundrum of we are getting to the point with our advisory teams where the number of client service managers keeps growing and growing, but you're not necessarily seeing any let up in, in what's getting pushed onto their plate. So are there processes that these client service managers are currently working on that could be done maybe more efficiently um, because it is a reputable process by back office? So we started to build out our new client onboarding and then our client support teams where we were taking a look at you know, the new life cycle of a client and, and onboarding those accounts. What does that mean from a CRM perspective? What does that mean from a custodian perspective? And then once those, those accounts are open, how are we, um, how are every single team or how have every team, single team been working to, to go through this process? And we were finding that we were getting different answers from teams as we started looking at the metrics from our custodians and what we were seeing across NIGOs and, and through our monthly and weekly conversations, looking for areas of improvement said, kind of took a pause and said, well, wait a second, we should be meeting with our operations managers from each one of the client facing teams and saying, what can we take from you and start building out those processes. So to those operations managers and client service managers credit, they really gave us the space to say, we think that we can really help you in this area so that you can refocus and then also be speaking with more of your clients, because there was also a a want from that side of the business as well to be able to have that opportunity to do it, but there just wasn't the capacity. So we worked very closely in testing what would work and what didn't work, coming up with these processes that would be repeatable, that we could then build out a, a great back office operational team that could get these processes across the finish line and then build out the infrastructure and the reporting in place for them. So that way they felt confident and comfortable with what was going on how we were communicating with them. In some cases, we actually, our, our back office team actually does send new client onboarding packets to, directly to the client. And so we worked very closely with teams to say, 
here's the messaging that's going to go out. Here's what they're going to receive through, through DocuSign. So we're ensuring that the client experience matches what the, the advisory team expectation is and that there's not any miscommunication between the two. So it took a while through the testing process to get us to where everyone was comfortable, but it's been amazing to see how this has actually grown because we have some teams now who before were like, ah, you know what, I don't really know how you're gonna be able to do this. <laughs> like we've just, got, we've got this system down and we know what we're doing. Um, and over time, as we've had them be a part of the process and been very inclusive and very thoughtful in how we're interjecting into any one component of these operations, it's become something where they're now saying, I can't believe I was fighting you on that. Like, I can't believe I wanted to keep that one piece of paperwork, or I really wanted to track that TOA, or I really wanted to put in that cost basis. I, I love how both of you have tackled this. Everyone struggles with this kind of that, that, that bifurcation of, you know, where, where does operations stop and clients, it's all client service, but where does, mm -hmm. where does back office operations and client facing client service folks, where, where you know, what, where's that bifurcation? And I, this is fascinating how both of you have, have tackled this. I think you both, I think, I think you have to really approach it from a team aspect. So you're, we're not really two different teams. You're one team. Yep. That's great. Yep. To totally agree. And, and Amanda, those, those uh, advisors that you highlighted, you know, and we've had the same experience where they're naysayers at first, and then uh, ultimately they come around. They become the best salespeople for for new new joiners, right? Absolutely. Well, let me let me switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about how we've had to kind of reinvent how we work over the past few years on, on a day to day basis. Now we're not always sitting next to one another any longer. So I'm curious. What kind of data or intelligence are you both using to make this new working model successful, especially in a remote working environment? So, Eric, I'll, I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, I, I think that it's a great question. It, it's spot on. Um, data absolutely plays a more prominent role as the office has moved more to a hybrid um, uh, environment. And the a classic example I think of relates to centralized custodian and client operations. Um, and so previously, right, the manager, let's say there was a manager of that centralized operations team, um, you know, she, she's standing alongside uh, her, her team and, and is able, just from being attentive to the environment, um, she's going to get a decent sense of who's, a, who's able to accomplish which types of tasks well, client-specific issues, clashes, between centralized uh, and, and client-facing staff and the like. And in a more remote environment, it's just a much bigger challenge. Um, and as much as we can tell people to like speak up uh, and tell us when things are not working um, and emphasize that we're an open culture that, that supports that, human nature can get in the way. I mean, a lot of people don't, don't like to go out of their way to tell a manager or someone that 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 there's an issue going on or tasks aren't getting done well. They feel like they're they're tattling. Um, so we felt the need to add more fields to our CRM to measure more specific data around like how different elements of tasks. So not just like when was the task created and when was it completed, but oftentimes things are going back and forth between the client team and the centralized team, right? It's being sent out for signatures. It's then it has to come back for processing. So we're trying to, we, we now capture different points along the way um, to see where bottlenecks might be um, and, and more specifics around the nature of the tasks so that the data is, is uh, more worthwhile for us. Um, 
And we've also been working on solutions where people can provide feedback uh, on, on how tasks are executed in a way that feels like it's encouraged by all parties. You're not like tattling for lack of a better word uh, when you're using it. And it feels like it's just part of the process. So we actually uh, launched something this week uh, that, that gets to that. Um, you know, our centralized operations team is on pace to execute something like 32,000 tasks this year. So while anecdotes are helpful, um, we need this data to help us uncover areas where more training is necessary or processes need to be improved. Um, but that doesn't mean that communication is any less important as it was before. If anything, it's the opposite. Um, the communication between team members is absolutely essential for both collaboration and culture, but it's just now more important than ever to supplement that with more like data informed reporting and insights. And Amanda, I know you've done a lot of work in your CRM to provide transparency across your team. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna echo what Eric said. Data is, data is huge. And we have spent so much time looking at what fields we could be tracking. And when we're thinking about these, these items that we're working on for advisors, um, not only, you know, where does it stand in, in as far as who is accountable for the current action item on this task, but we've also been looking at the load of work that is on each operations um, employee and what we had to set parameters for, okay, so what can we handle? What can't we handle? We had to build in a complexity scale for the type of task that we were doing. So if we have a new client that's being onboarded that has 72 accounts that needs to be transferred, that's going to be quite different than an onboarding where maybe you're only dealing with five accounts. So we have to be able to not only put in a complexity scale, but also a, a timeline that's associated with that based off of how long we know it takes based off of our previous experience to get these tasks across the finish line. And then from that, we've built out daily reporting that shows us we have, we have one individual who he's quite excellent and loves diving into this data. He was able to actually identify, okay, I know if I give um, each one of my onboarders 12 onboardings on any one given day, that's kind of like the sweet spot. If we go above that, then we're going to start noticing mistakes. So where do we need to scale back or where do we need to add in uh, additional resources to be able to help this team? And then what does that also mean if we're thinking about uh, M&A or onboarding a new team? Because we're know we're, we know we're going to have an influx of all of this new data and new information that's coming into the firm. So we need to really be able to measure who's doing what on any given day, not because we're trying to micromanage people, but because we're trying to really help them be successful in their day. And then communication is so key as well. So we have standups that happen daily, or we have weekly team meetings, you know, kind of going a little bit more towards a, a project management background, but where we're communicating what's working, what's not working. And when people are raising their hands when they have a question or when they have a concern, because maybe something's gone awry with, with the with the request that they're working on. So we've tried to build in as many of those data points as possible to create a, a dashboard view for operations that shows them what's going on and, and where we might need efficiencies. But we also provide that to the advisor team as well. So that way they know, here's what your piece of the picture looks like. And here's what, how that relates firm-wide. Just so that way they know, you know, oh, this other team is, is going through the same type of experience that we're going on right now, whether it be from an operational perspective or an influx of clients that's happening. Um, just trying to really use data to, to help us in those manners. So one more topic I want to 
hit on. Uh, we, we've we've talked about it on past episodes about our industry's focus on a really well-defined career path for advisors. But uh, Amanda, talk to us about the work you've done in building out career paths for your operations folks. Absolutely. So when I when I first came over to our back office, it was really we didn't have a project manager at the firm, so I got to kind of jump into that role and and kind of figure out what that looked like. And in doing that, it, it really became a passion of mine to be able to build out something that we could grow into. So as we started talking about business systems and then operations, traditionally what we had saw or what we would see would be people that were from the back office who eventually went over to advisor teams. But you didn't really see this huge hand raise of people that were from advisor teams who wanted to come from operations because they didn't really know what that looks like. And I think you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was still being built a lot across the industry, especially in the RIA space. It was, well, I don't really just want to go work with one custodian, or I don't really want to go work and be in just compliance. So as we were thinking about career paths and how we needed to build out this structure, you know, our platform really started as a small group of four or five individuals, and now it's over 45 individuals. So it was building in the roles as we knew we needed scale and then taking a look at what people were interested in and how all of these tasks organized well together. And then from there, building out a a structure that showed employees, here's how you're going to grow in this role. And then as the firm grows, here's how your department grows. Here's how you're you're participating in the vision of the firm. And here's here's where we see you growing. We have a lot of one-on-one meetings where we go through employee goals, what they want out of their career in the near term and then long term, where do they see themselves growing? And if we have an employee who two years down their path at Mineta, who is sitting on you know, centralized operations and they say, you know what, really based off of the work that I've been doing and the interactions that I've had with the compliance team, I really think there's a role for me over here. We facilitate the move to that team because that's important. We wanna retain that talent And it's so much more beneficial to have that individual as a part of your operations team who has the background and knows what happens in other areas of the business. It just builds that great foundation for them. And then they can keep moving and growing in their career uh, based off of whatever path they want to go. So it's really been great to see how this has evolved over the course of the past few years and how there have been more and more individuals who are excited about the operations side. Um, and, and just to see what what has been possible. I really love it. So, Eric, how how have you approached career paths at Wellspire? Yeah, and a lot of similarities to what Amanda was saying. I felt myself not, nodding along. <laughs> um, and uh, we too are our head of our uh, advisory technology platform. Um, Alia Wagenhofer, she previously former life was was an advisor at at Wellspire. Uh, who who realized her passion was actually in technology and process, um, and 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 we've had other members. We've had members join our investment team who had started in the advisor track. Um, so it it is it's great to see that uh, happening more frequently uh, in in the industry. Um, you know, I I I do think I'll admit that defining if you're a smaller firm, defining career paths for operational roles is inherently more challenging, right? If you have if you have two people in operations, it's it it is hard to create a well-defined and reliable track. So I think this is an area where scale absolutely matters, right? We have a 20-person 
client operations team and it and it's regionally based uh, across the mid-Atlantic, the Northeast, the Midwest, and the West Coast. And just from the sheer size of the team, there are natural pro- progressions, right? If you if you like to manage, you could get involved in training, you could become a manager uh, for for uh, more junior members of the team, you could eventually work your way up to be a regional manager and, and so forth. There's a lot of projects and specializations uh, within the team. So someone who's a more senior operational operations staff member uh, could take the lead on projects that you know impact the entire firm. Um, but there but there is one aspect related to career pathing that I, I feel very strongly about that can be put in place uh, regardless of your firm's size. Um, and that's a consistent title structure. So I still see firms uh, or too many firms where someone who's in the back office just has the title of like operations, uh, right? It's like the name of the department they work in. Um, and we felt it was, you know, critical uh, early on to to have a, a, a system where um, everyone is sharing the same title hierarchy in terms of seniority. So uh, we've structured our titles to have two components. Um, the first one is about seniority, if, if, if you, for lack of a better word, and the other is, descript- is more descriptive of what you do. So, for example, you could be a vice president, comma, client operations or vice president, comma, advisor. Uh, the vice president reflects a similar seniority. You just work in different departments. Um, and everyone at Wellspire has that same set of, of titles, uh, which there's six in total. And it accomplishes a few goals. You know, one, it allows for HR policies on things like, you know, pay time off. Those can, if 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 those are driven by uh, sort of seniority or years at the firm, um, you can the the structure helps with that. Um, it highlights a progression of promotion uh, for how your titles can change over time for every single role. Um, and finally, and most importantly, right, it's inclusive. It it puts everyone on the same playing field. Uh, to avoid any belief that advisors are are more important to the firm than operational staff, because at the end of the day, everyone must feel included and like they are part and and that they are all on the same team uh, in order for the firm to be successful. Well, I want to thank you both for being here today and and sharing your experience with all of our listeners. This this has been a really deep discussion into RA operations at scale, and so Amanda and Eric, I can't I can't thank you enough. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. This was great. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been it's been great, Matt. Thanks. Well, that is a wrap on episode 43. We will talk to everybody soon.